My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, at any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. I want to try something different in this episode. Instead of going deep about an oddity that I visited in the past, how about something much more recent? How about just coming on an oddity hunt with me? Just about every weekend that I can, I sit down, check out my Otis map of oddities that I actively maintain and add to every week, and plot a little road trip with oddity stops throughout. My family then gets in the car, and we go on a little jaunt, a day trip. More often, it's a half-day trip. Last Saturday, we went to Connecticut and visited two sites connected to a preacher who has haunted me since I was a child, a minor witch memorial, a murder site that inspired a play and a movie, and an abandoned 19th century park. Along the way, I did a little bit of narrating of our trip. Nothing too planned, nothing produced, just me speaking into the phone every once in a while as we saw things. Just a little experiment to see what an episode like this could be like. So come with me to Connecticut. The trip from my front door to my front door took eight hours. Five of those hours were driving hours, and we covered some 290 miles. And really, once we hit our first oddity in the nutmeg state, we saw all five with less than an hour of driving. Only 40 miles connected these five sites, and it was all within a single tank of gas. All right, so um, I'm in the car. My wife's driving so I can talk into this thing. The kids are in the back seat. We just drove about two hours into Connecticut. We're in the... Hartford area? Hartford and New Haven. Hartford. Hartford area of uh, Connecticut, and we're trying to find a stone marker. According to the GPS, we're about half a mile away. Um, and as soon as I get the stone marker, I'll tell you more about what what it's for. I think it's a. Did I say what town we're in? We're in Enfield, Connecticut. I think it's a. I think it's a, like a loaf stone kind of thing. On the, on the ground. Uh, you, can, you can talk out loud. You can talk out. Speak up. You uh, start uh, Okay, so it should be somewhere. There it is. Ah! That's it? I think that's it, yeah. Oh, okay. Looks like you can park on the street down there. All right, I'm at the intersection of Enfield Street and Post Office Road in Enfield, Connecticut. It's a little bit of a, a yard, really. It's not really a yard. There's no there's houses around it, but it's just a flat area of grass with a bush in the middle of it. And in front of this bush is a large rock, about the size of a big dog. Um, on it, it says, This boulder marks the place where stood the second meeting house of the First Church of Christ in Enfield, built A.D. 1704 and used for worship until 1775. All right, now the important part. In this meeting house on July 8th, 1741, during the revival known as the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards preached his celebrated sermon. Hold on, there's grass around this. Sinners in the... Wait for that motorcycle to go by. Preached his celebrated sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now this is... A fascinating topic to me. I'm not religious. I used to be. I used to be religious. 
and back when back in those days um baptists was my, was my religion and back in those days jonathan edwards was legendary for the sermon he was uh, basically in he he described hell really well let's put it that way um talked about children hovering over pits of hellfire and the infinity of torture that is hell and apparently it was really vivid and so vivid that when he preached it on this spot here in infield everybody had revival everybody converted uh, people could feel the flames of hell licking at their skin uh, and it was really a vivid thing growing up in the baptist church hearing about this so it's always kind of stuck with me um, but i'm still fascinated with it even as a non-believer now because basically what jonathan edwards was was a horror author. He literally wrote a horror story, read it to people, had a reading, and literally scared the hell out of people. So I still, I still like Jonathan Edwards. I still like this idea of sinners in the hands of an angry God being a horror story. So I almost count it in that genre, of which I'm a big fan of. So being on the spot where it happened, it was only the second time he preached the sermon, I believe. He preached it once in Massachusetts. Nothing really happened. But when he preached it here, on this spot where I am standing right now, as tons of cars go by, people got religion really fast. And it's a really, just a really fascinating story around the Great Awakening, around, you know, making hell a real place, how that kind of evolved over the years in religion. But again, right here where I'm standing, <laughs> where this giant rock is at my feet, sinners in the hands of an angry God had a better effect than any Stephen King movie. Okay, let me interrupt here and read you some of Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It is everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages, in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains, so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Oh, who can express what the state of a soul in such circumstances is? All that we can possibly say about it? gives but a very feeble, faint representation of it. It is inexpressible and inconceivable, for who knows the power of God's anger? That's some Clive Barker mixed with H.P. Lovecraft stuff right there. Okay, this is one of those oddities. You come, you see it, you take a photo. There's not much else to do around it. So now I'm going to get back in the car, and we're going to go to see the spot where Jonathan Edwards was born, uh, which is just a sign, so it's going to be another jump out, take some photos, read the sign, and take off to the next oddity on this little jaunt in Connecticut. I think it's it's going to be one of those historic signs, like the state signs. Brown I don't know what color they are in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh yeah, that is brown. doesn't look like a historic sign at all. All right, we had to pull over onto the side of the road for this one in front of somebody's house to see this sign. Uh, birthplace of Jonathan Edwards, first American theologian and philosopher, born in 1703, son of Timothy Edwards. He graduated from Yale at age 17, was pastor in Bolton, tutor at Yale, missionary at Stockbridge, 
and in 1758 became president of Princeton University, where he died. His grandson, Aaron Burr, became third vice president of the United States. I didn't know that. Um, I don't know if this is the house or not. I'm going to do some research and tell you back at the basement. It's um, not the house. The sign basically marks the fact that Jonathan Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut. All right, we drove about 10 miles away from um, the birth site of Jonathan Edwards. And now we're on the town green in Windsor, Connecticut. Um, I'm here looking for a witch memorial. I'm very, very much obsessed with witch memorials. I pretty much have seen them all in New England. And that's why I'm ending up here, because it's not really a witch memorial. It's a couple of bricks inscribed with the names of two uh, women who were uh, executed as a result of witch trials uh, back in the 17th century. Connecticut was actually the first place to hang witches in the New World, but 50 years before Salem, they hanged Alice Young for being a witch. So that's who one of the bricks is dedicated to, and the other one is another person hanged for being a witch. I think that happened in the 1650s, so still, you know, decades before Salem ever even got all witch hysterical. So right now on the green, it's like a big circle of bricks with lots of famous Windsorites, I guess, and I gotta find the two witch bricks. You found one? Oh. Look, the two witch bricks are here somewhere, I think. Okay. So I think it's on this, if it's not here, it's over there. They're, just their names hanged in the year. It's Alice Young, I can't remember the name of the other one. I'm seeing local business names. Yeah, I see the hot dog. Bart's restaurant founder. This is harder than I thought it'd be. I don't see him. Maybe it, maybe it is over that other section. There's two witch bricks. What are they? What are they called? Alice Young is one of them, and I can't remember the name of the other one. But they both say uh, they were hanged on the brick itself. This is the last section, so maybe I'm in the wrong wrong area. Oh, here's one. Here you go. Lydia Gilbert, witch hanging victim, December 1654. So that means the other one's here somewhere, too. Oh, here's the other one. Right by some flowers somebody left, I guess. Alice Alce Young, witch hanging victim, May 26th, 1647. So that was, whatever, less than 50 years before Salem. So I decided since I'm at the town green in Windsor to just walk two-tenths of a mile away from it to go see the Amy Archer Gilligan house. I've been here before, I've seen it before. It's a private house now, but what it used to be was a nursing home run by a woman named Amy Archer Gilligan. She was also a serial killer. She killed as many as five. I just realized how awkward it was to be talking about serial killer on this quiet road of people. Coming up on it now, it's just a brick house in a residential street on Prospect Street, specifically. I think last time I came up here was maybe four years ago? I can't remember. It's been a while. But this was a spot where she killed as few as five people, possibly as many as 50. And then, of course, her, sto her story became famous as the play and the movie Arsenic and old lace. Alright, fortunately it looks like nobody's around <laughs> while I do this. It's always awkward taking photos of private houses, but 
quadruply so when you're doing it for infamous reasons. Reasons of infamy? I don't know. I'm gonna take a picture. So the fascinating thing to me is that this weird little black comedy of a movie, Arsenic and Old Lace, is only here because a woman killed elderly patients, serially. Like, I'm used to horror movies existing because of serial killers, but not comedies starring Cary Grant. Now I'm walking back to the car, just parked on the green, then we're gonna take off, go to Farmington, Connecticut, and go on a short little hike through an abandoned park. All right, the last stop on our trip is a hike through an abandoned amusement park in Farmington, Connecticut. Uh, it, was, it was called Suburban Park, uh, started in 1895, I think abandoned in 1905, and there's still remnants of it throughout this forest trail they've turned this thing into. It's really cool. And I'll take pictures and narrate my way through it. Did you find where the carousel was? Okay. This is where the carousel was? Oh, this is the fountain. This is still here. It's right over there. We'll go see it. What does it say? It says, a round white canopy covered the steam-powered merry-go-round operated by Charles A. Hackney, featuring flying horses described as gaudily painted steeds. The carousel, which cost one penny to ride, was a favorite of park visitors, especially children. Music from a band organ was heard throughout the park. In July of 1898, the carousel was moved to the Chutes, a new amusement park in Hartford. That's cool. I believe all this was like treeless right here. Alright, let me set the scene up a little better than I did on site. Basically, what we were doing is walking through a trail in a forest. It was a nicely maintained trail. Uh, there were various kind of uh, offshoot trails. There was a map at the front of the park. And every so often there would be some kind of a ruin or some kind of uh, space where they'd have a placard or informational sign letting you know what was there. And it's a, just a really cool way to hike through the forest because usually there's nothing there but trees and birds. And I like ruins and informational placards. Slightly better. Made of rock and iron, the fountain was the first in the nation to be powered by electricity at a time when streets and homes were still gaslit. Colored lights hanging from the two central discs reflected onto water sprayed into the air. Thing's big though, huh? It's just covered. This is a big circle, giant circle of moss-covered rock. Ooh, and cobwebs. All right. Still walking through the woods here, looking for the storage cellar, which I guess is a hole in the ground. That's weird, huh? Here we go. Yeah, it's a hole in the ground. Look at that. Can people go inside? Yeah. I have to go. You first. No, not you first. <laughs> me first. It's scary in there. I don't know how to go in. It looks scary to me. I'm gonna go inside. Me too. Only first. Uh, oh, let me take a picture. Yeah, it's a. Uh, oh, there's, there's a. Oh, it's tiny in here. It's a tiny little cellar. It's probably okay if she comes in. Sticking my hand out of the top, so it looks like my hand's coming through the ground. Can I take my hand back? Yeah. What's it like in there? 
You guys can come in if you want. No, it's not bad. All right, tell me what you see in this tiny cellar. I see lots of paintings on the walls, a huge damage, mm -hmm. lots of disease. Anyone can do offer sticks, walks, and a hole. <laughs> yeah, it's wild down here. And lots of bugs. Yeah. Lots. All right, let's get out of here. All right, we're at the last stop in the suburban park. Ruins, which is a dance pavilion. It's like the foundation of one. It's turned into a house, it burned down. It's got a huge, huge long history, which I want to read to you, but I have people coming up behind me. So, embarrassment. All right, they just left. So I'm gonna read you <laughs> what happened here on these foundation stones. Popular dance parties and other events were held on weekend afternoons and evenings in this building with its 40 by 60 wooden dance floor, foot wooden dance floor. Uh, they held graduation receptions and dances, here again, and temperance lectures and theatrical performances. After the park closed, uh, Carl Hillier's family converted the pavilion to a summer cottage in 1907, and then in 1925, it was winterized with a partial cellar and lived here year-round. building was destroyed by fire in the 1960s. So this spot went from being a dance pavilion to a summer house to a year-round house and then burned down in the 1960s. So how old was the park? So 1895 to sometime in the 1960s or something on the spot and now there's just the ruins of a basement complete with a radiator. All right, now I gotta find my way out of this park and jump in the car and two hours till home. And that's my favorite thing about these trips is, even though we did five hours of driving, three hours of hanging out at sites, we got home at like four or five o'clock. So a very decent hour, and we had plenty of time to just veg after that or do whatever we needed to do around the house. This wasn't something that took up an entire weekend, but we saw enough cool stuff that it felt like it filled up the entire weekend. I'm gonna post photos uh, from our jaunt. Um, look for that in the show notes. It's gonna actually send you to the newsletter I do every week for my Patreon page for the Otis Club. And I'm opening up that newsletter to everybody who listens to this podcast, just so you can be more aware of where I do this kind of um, chronicling of my journeys. Usually this would be an article in the newsletter or maybe an article on Otis. Um, the Otis Club is also where I have my Otis map of oddities that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. This is open to anybody above a certain level at the Otis Club, and they can see everywhere that I've marked across the entire country, places I've been and places I haven't been, all handpicked by me as odd things I want to see. Feel free to join, it's pretty cheap. It's the lowest membership tier is a dollar a month for which you get one newsletter every month, plus a membership card, plus other benefits. And there are other tiers, three, five, 10 and 20 that have various levels of perks as well. So thank you for listening. I don't know if this came out well. I know I should have done a lot more describing as I walked around some of these sites, but hopefully you'll enjoy the pictures. Hopefully maybe this is something you dug. I can try another episode like this at some point in the future. And until then, this has been Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast.